How about those leaves, Paul? Yeah, the leaves are striking this year with all the new and exciting colors. Uh, you were saying about not too many reds, but uh, further north you go, there seems to be more red. But the, the le- is there a science to that? I don't know. Maybe cooler nights. I don't uh, know. Could be, but anyhow, I still got lots of green maple leaves on my trees. So, but those uh, those leaves are, are on a two game winning streak. Hey. You're listening to episode five of In Grey Highlands this week. Okay, Paul, you know, one of the things that uh, we want to talk about is uh, there's only four days to the federal election on October the 21st. So uh, uh, what what will the newsmakers talk about then? I guess the the results of the election. Well, there'll be lots of stuff to talk about, I'm sure. So uh, we had a great, successful all-candidates meeting this year. And I want to, uh, our producer will roll some highlights uh, from one of the questions that the public asks us, and it's about supply management. So uh, I, I like each one of the six candidates got a shot at talking about supply management. Right. And I heard they weren't all on the same page. That's true. How many concessions did we make on supply management in percentage uh, while uh, negotiating the Mexico-Canada-U.S. agreement? So I assume this is with the um, dairy farmers. So how many concessions did we, as in uh, sort of Canada, make on supply management in management, a percentage while negotiating the Canada-U.S. agreement, Mexico-Canada-U.S. agreement? Okay, the first speaker will be Danielle. So supply management not only affects dairy, but affects poultry and eggs as well. Um, and admittedly, I don't know what the exact percentage of, uh, of the supply management. I can tell you, and, and, and everyone up here is going to tell you the exact same thing, that we will defend supply management. Um, I, I can imagine that sitting, if I pretend for one second I'm Christoph Freeland for a second, that sitting at the table with Trump was not a fun negotiation. Um, so I do give kudos to uh, the Liberal government for protecting it and doing what they can to um, to keep it as close to what it was uh, and, and is now. Okay. Okay. Uh, ben or Michael, oh, sorry. The, the, there are different numbers on this that get bandied about, but the, the, the best number I've seen is about 13%, between 12 and 13% mark, market opening, um, which is roughly in line with what the Harper government negotiated with the Obama administration under the original uh, TPP negotiations uh, and the early CETA negotiations. So it's not, uh, it, it, and it needs to be, to be, to be, um, uh, considered in light of the fact that the President of the United States in the NAFTA negotiations was looking for 100% market access. Um, and also in light of the fact that we, the, the government, has been compensating uh, dairy farmers, as it should, for the loss of market share and quota. Uh, there was a, uh, an announcement, I think, in August about a $1.7 billion of, of uh, support that has been gone out, uh, going out to our dairy farmers to compensate for that market share loss. 
Thanks, Mike. Hi, Dan. So on how many concessions we made on supply management? Well, since the program is still in existence, I would say we haven't made enough. It's time to abolish that protectionist lobby and allow people who actually want to start dairy farms but not pay $35,000 per cow just for the right to milk that cow, well, let's get them going. There's a 300% tariff wall that just artificially inflates the price of dairy, and it does nothing for the average consumer. And I feel that the farmers would be better served if they could sell raw milk, regular milk, any of their products, free and into the Canadian and global markets without any marketing boards or restrictions. Thank you. Alex. I, I kind of figured, Michael, you'd know the exact answer. You're part of the team, as you pointed out a couple times. But my, my understanding is for the dairy farmers, 3.59% uh, of concessions were agreed upon. Um, and as well, there's actually no... Uh, um, What's it here? To buy a green, no cap on actual dairy uh, exports going forward as well, which was another concession. Bottom line, the Conservative Party will continue to support our uh, supply management system, and we will ensure that there are, uh, any of our supply managed uh, programs are compensated for any losses for uh, due to these trade deals. Okay. Thanks, Alex. Uh, Chris. I'm not going to give you actual numbers because I don't have them in front of me, but I know that the party has committed itself to protecting supply management. Not only that, but they want to become more transparent in negotiations so you can see what's actually going on so that you know if it's going to affect you in a negative way. Because if you, ha if you see that up front, then we can make changes quicker to the plan so that it doesn't hurt you negatively. So that's what we want to do, Tra more transparency with the negotiations. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Okay, Bill? The People's Party of Canada wants to phase out supply management, so the issue of concessions is not really an issue for us. Um, we would then be able to have expanded uh, free trade of all of those um, products, dairy, poultry, eggs, and also reduce the cost for the average Canadian. So that's our answer. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Supply management's been around for quite a long time. It, it builds the stability in those type of uh, commodities for sure. Well, that's true. I think you were saying that they all did very well. Yes, they really did. Uh, I was I was impressed, quite frankly. And our moderator was uh, was really good as well, uh, Ray Robertson. So. I think the old candidates all have to be complimented for taking uh, the ability to run because, uh, you know, you always know that there's only going to be one past the post. Right. And uh, certainly it uh, it takes a lot of uh, time and effort, as you know, as being a deputy mayor at one time. It, and in a number of elections, it, it does take a lot of time to, uh, to uh, it sure does. get out there and um, get, uh, get known and uh, re-known, I guess you might want to call it. Yes. And, uh, knock on those doors and shake those hands and kiss those babies. And I think that it's important uh, that we re-emphasize that everybody should get out and vote this Monday. You've got those little cards in the mail, dig them out, go to your poll and, and uh, cast your ballot. That's why we fight wars, to make sure that we have the right to vote. That's right. There's countries out there that don't have the right to vote and certainly exercise that ability. I, I've already gone to the All Candidates meeting on uh, Saturday, so I'm, I'm good to go. 
If you don't have your card, just remember to go to elections.ca and key in your postal code, and it'll tell you how to proceed from that point of view. And one thing I want to add is uh, um, if you haven't uh, voted before, make sure you take two pieces of uh, ID. It could be your driver's license uh, and then maybe a, a bill of, or something else that proves your address. So you need two pieces if you haven't voted before. So as you're aware, Stuart, we have a, a, we're working on a climate action uh, committee here in Gray Highlands. And we saw some of that uh, climate action here on the 27th of September here in, in Grey Highlands and also in, I guess, at the Missable Office in right. Rockdale. Right. And uh, certainly lots of people were waving their signs and uh, many uh, drivers were uh, honking their horns in, in support. And I know I came up through here um, about 1.30, I think it was here in Flesherton on my way to Meaford and certainly uh, saw that uh, they were very active in uh, making aware to those uh, motorized uh, drivers coming by. Our associate producer, Kate Russell, was out and about with a microphone. We have a local climate activist, uh, Sue Neer, who accompanied uh, Christopher Wrigley to the demonstration in Markdale and Owen Sound. Christopher is someone who needs assistance to communicate, so this is what he wrote about the climate. We're talking to Sue Near and Christopher Wrigley at the climate strike here at uh, in Grey Highlands in Markdale in front of the municipal office. So what do you have to say to us today, Christopher? Hi, Kate. Um, Christopher, do you want to say hello to Kate? Yeah. And to everyone? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you care about the climate? Hey. Do you think it's going well? Yeah. Okay, because yeah. everyone's out? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Christopher has written a piece with me this morning through supported typing, and I'd like to read that because that says more than anything I could say. So I'll read that to you now. Christopher wrote, We humans have been too self-concerned, forgetting that we have shared the planet with other living things our entire existence. To rectify the damage we have caused, we must now become less self-centered and more self-conscious. We must now devote all human resources to restoring our rightful place in this heavenly world. I give my heart to you and pledge that I will do all in my power to assist in the greatest project humans have ever undertaken. Christopher Wrigley, Meaford, Ontario, Canada, Earth. That's beautiful, Christopher. And here's Sue reading out his sign. The climate is now failing. Humankind, let's not fail to make amends. Yeah. That's a great sign. Did you come up with that sign, Christopher? <gasps> yeah? Yeah! Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Christopher belongs to Bridges Over Barriers, a wonderful group in, from, um, whose center is in Guelph, and they all receive supported typing in order to communicate their inner thoughts. That's excellent. Thank you very much for sharing your inner thoughts with us today, Christopher. Yeah! Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Well, that was interesting that uh, that March of 2016, where we had a freezing rain event, uh, then a, 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 a mild spell with with rain, and then another rain event, and uh, and it was sort of a compounding of of, of uh, a lot of moisture. Yeah, the Boyne River was at flood levels before they had to release Lake Eugenia, and so that's when it compounded and added up. So anyhow, some work has been done to relieve the pressure in that particular thing. Some storm drains have been put in place. So anyhow, we're ready a little bit better now, so the, the Climate Crisis Committee should be able to uh, 
develop some new concepts. Well, and just going back to that part, though, is the problem then, it was in March, and the ground was still frozen. So the, the ground can't absorb when it's frozen or it's saturated. So that was a, a huge issue. That, uh, And I guess that goes back to the part of uh, possibly uh, local or regional atmospheric conditions. Speaking of climate change, it's important for people to understand the difference between climate, and that is long-term range global climate patterns and the weather, local and regional atmospheric conditions over a short uh, time. Well, that's... uh, Say that twice. (laughs) That's a mouthful, Paul, but uh, with that in mind, uh, about climate change and things, uh, harvest preparations are underway, so how are things out on the farms? Well, I think uh, it was it was an interesting week last week. It was really warm, and I know that a lot of crops got in late, but certainly that uh, week of warm weather uh, was enabling those who have soybeans to get them most of them off, and now they're starting into the corn. Okay, so wheat, wheat was average. I think I think wheat did uh, maybe above average uh, because uh, of the moisture and the heat that came along in July, and and uh, your soil your your cereal crops I think did a fairly good average. Uh, there wasn't much soy, uh, canola because we know what's happening with the canola market in the world stage. So, uh, Paul, um, we uh, you did a lot of stuff, and at uh, we, you know what's unique at Grey Highlands is that we have three fall fairs, okay, and you're each one of them. So, uh, one uh, that I really think that you probably enjoy is the one at in uh, in Rockland, all right, where you get to make a, an apple pie. Well, certainly the week before I made the apple pie, they had the harvest long table where there was over 250 uh, people sitting down for dinner. And that was a unique situation. Was that a buffet? Uh, you got served. Yes. Oh, you got served. You, you got served. In Country it. style. Yeah, that was the week before. And that was the start of the Rockland Fair. That's where right. they had the ambassador uh, uh, contest and that. And the following week when they have the, the fair along with the uh, all the... I think they show seven different types of animal uh, animals at the Rockland Fair. And uh, so certainly one of those highlights of the Rockland Fair is also the uh, men's pie, apple pie making. So there was, uh, I think altogether, I think there would have been about six or seven of us, uh, some 4-H, uh, some junior farmer, a few of us uh, politicians and some uh, the lions. You know, Dave, Dave Clark always makes a, a pie. I think we made close to it, 10 pies. Are uh, you getting better at it now? I'm I'm consistent. Right. I've been doing it, I think for about twelve years, and uh, so as you probably aware, as as uh, we make uh, we make a pie, then we take all the dough left over from making the first pie, and we make a community pie. Right. And I say I call it a multicultural pie. Okay. <laughs> we put all the doughs together, and uh, all the dough, I should say, and we make a, a pie. And I think you've got more money than my first pie. <laughs> Well, that's great. That was a great idea. That's waste not. That's uh, part of the climate change is waste not, want not, right? Oh, no. Recycle. So uh, sometimes those those pies can be a little tough, though, the crust. So have you ever eaten one of your multicultural pies? No, they always sometimes go anywhere between $150 and uh, $300. I will tell, the, I'll tell you the highlight of that fair was two dozen of right. uh, butter tarts that haven't even been made yet. Brought over five hundred dollars. Wow. Okay. A good fundraiser then for our uh, our local Rockland Fair. So every every one of our 
fall fairs is is fantastic. So uh, I think that it just makes everybody feel really wonderful about where they live. So, Paul, one of the things that, uh, uh, you know, you've been uh, in the uh, living on the farm for quite some time. Uh, one of the things that I used to listen to at our review every year was the Farmer's Almanac. I bought you one today just to have a look at what they're going to say. And some, maybe you have some thoughts on what they're predicting uh, going forward. And and also, you've been plowing snow for quite a few years. Uh, do you remember some really... Last year, by the way, I think, you know, it cost me a lot more money. There was a, The snow wasn't as heavy, but it was more frequent. Yeah, there, it was probably more of an average winter last year. Uh, I will say briefly that... Uh, um, Snow plowing or snow removal back in the 90s was different than it was is today. And, and maybe these are the different patterns. But I will say in the in the 90s, you would, you know, you would plow snow maybe once in October, November, December would be really busy. January would be really heavy. And then you would hardly ever blow a driveway in February because it would be cold. The lakes would be froze over. And then you get the then you get uh, the Colorado lows coming through in March. Then it got rolled into the 2000s where it changed. So you weren't plowing snow maybe so early in the fall, but then you seem to be busy around um, December, January, February. And then there was that one particular year, I think it was 2012, where the snow went away, and it was the first year I never blew snow in March. Really? So, there, you know, I probably, if I was to go back through all my... My books of because I've been doing it probably close to thirty years. So we could get a diary of your of your uh, yeah. snow plowing. Yeah, just in the conditions. Could you do times. next time then uh, probably uh, an Excel spreadsheet then so that we can evaluate the farmers' almanac this year against your historical uh, reviews, and then we can buy some old farmers' almanacs and really see how important this book is. So Paul, read me the first line of the farmers' almanac there that. That, that tells us about this winter coming. Okay, this winter, it says, <clears throat> this is in southern Ontario, uh, winter temperatures, precipitation, and snowfall will be above normal. I guess that's why there's so many darn apples, eh? <laughs> that's right. And, and, and the calves have long hair. The calves are getting long in the hair. That's right. right. That's usually another sign of, of, of cool weather. How about those... Uh, uh, the other signs of winter as well that uh, you, you mentioned something today that I didn't know about is the height of the corn. So, the, so is that? But how does that relate to, to snow? Well, sometimes they used to always say that the height of the of the cob on the on the corn stalk would, would determine the height of the snow. And if the if the cob is low, that means there's going to be a, a lesser depth of snow. And if the cobs are high, that means the cobs that means it's going to be a, a greater depth of snow. That's what they used to always say, anyway. So you're being out there. Is it true? I don't grow corn. <laughs> yeah, but you see corn around well, on I the have. fields. I see it, and I uh, think you need to do more research. I mean, come on. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Stuart is the. Uh, one of the first things a farmer will say is, "How about that weather? And how what do you think? Of, how about that winter? And what do you think the winter's going to be like?" And it always comes back to, "We'll tell you next spring." Okay, so no one's really sticking their neck out, but uh, everybody's stockpiling wood. I understand, so um, that's that's important. We had the uh, wood stove on at, uh, at the store on the weekend. I just love the smell of uh, burning wood. So, anyhow, that leads us into. Uh, a whole new atmosphere for this fall coming and getting prepped for winter. Well, certainly we live in a country that we probably need the heat on for six months of the year, what they call it. I guess it's two seasons, summer and winter. 
Anyhow, one of the things that I do in the fall is uh, also I make preserves on the on the weekends uh, just to keep my hand in and in the pickle business. So I made some firekraut last weekend, and uh, it's really spicy cabbage. So it's uh, something that I'm very proud of. So someday you'll come by, and uh, I'll give you a jar. Hmm, sounds hot. It is hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting, and I know a lot of different people are, are certainly, um, I know uh, um, Apple Crisp is very popular right now with all those apples. Uh, it is. Actually, uh, we have, um, uh, my wife makes wild apple preserves from the Pelliser Estates. That's the old apple tree beside behind the store. It's called the Pelliser Estates. Right. Okay. Uh, so, Stuart, I understand that uh, we have a, a repeating uh, event coming up called the Harvest Cafe. Who's hosting that uh, this time? Well, Ted Barris, of course. Ted is out there, uh, and we have an interview with him today. So he's a terrific guy. And it's all about uh, the uh, Second World War and the parts that, uh, that the medics played in that particular war. Okay. And I understand that uh, he was uh, in, and in, uh, he came a couple a couple years back. Uh, last last year he was here, and he did about Vimy Ridge. Right, right. So you like that one as Paul, because your grandfather was at Vimy Ridge, and so was mine. And uh, so that was was really kind of a special. So Stuart, I understand that you have the uh, upcoming uh, chamber and your general meeting, and you got uh, Chris Hughes uh, is going to be uh, speaking at that event. Yes, I did an interview with uh, with uh, Chris Hughes this week, and uh, Chris is a real interesting guy. I've known him for a long time. He used to be with uh, Bruce, and he's now on his own uh, on a, as a tourism consultant. But his uh, his ideas uh, sweat the small things. So, and that applies to any business. Be nice to your people, uh, your staff, your customers, and worry about some of the little things that people come. That's first impressions. Anyhow, Chris will be good at that, and I'm excited to. Uh, that he's going to be presenting at the at AGM on the 24th. Okay, sir. So remember in council, it wasn't the big things that, that was the problem. It was the little things that you had to take care of. That's right. Okay, so those, then... Those potholes. Well, yeah, it, it's the things that irk people, right? Right. Uh, then on October 23rd, on the speaker series for the museum, uh, Michael uh, Peterman, uh, the marvelous Strickland sisters, uh, Catherine Parr Trail and Susan Moody in England and Upper Canada. That sounds interesting. I'll be there. And then on uh, on November 9th, uh, an evening with Drew Hayden Taylor is uh, coming to speak at the at the Kimplex, and uh, certainly uh, he is an award winning playwright, novelist, filmmaker, and columnist from the Curve Lake First Nations near Peterborough. Well, that'll be exciting as well. So um, Barry Penhill and Jane Gibson always do a nice job at, with the friends there. So looking forward to attending that as well. Certainly. And then tickets are uh, $25 per person. Or if you get a table of eight, they're 20 bucks each. Let's sign on. Sounds right. Okay. Stuart got to interview Ted Barris. How about that? I have Ted Barris with me this afternoon. Ted is a, an author, which will be at our Harvest Cafe tonight, uh, October the 17th, at the Kinplex in, in Flesherton. Ted, it's wonderful. Hi, Stuart. How are you nice doing? To, nice to talk to you. I'm good. Good. Uh, last year, I had the pleasure of uh, your introduction of uh, Femi Ridge. So now this is another book. Was this book just written in the last year, Rush to Danger? 
Rust to Danger, Stu, has been uh, in my head and uh, on my keyboard for many, many years. I-, I could trace it back to the time I was 14, and that's um, 56 years ago. <laughs> and uh, when my dad was sort of taking care of me after I'd had an injury, and um, he was sort of regaling me with stories, as he often did, my dad being Alex Barris, uh, who was a well-known journalist and broadcaster, and he started telling me stories, and I asked him, I popped the big question, I said, what did you do in the war? And he began to explain to me, he was born in New York City uh, when uh, he became draftable in 1942 as a 20-year-old. Uh, they needed medics, and my dad was just as glad not to carry a weapon, and so he went off to medical training in Kansas and ended up in late 1944, early 1945, in the bloodiest campaign the Americans experienced, the Battle of the Bulge. But what my dad really failed to tell me was some of the critical stuff of when he actually faced his toughest challenge as a medic in February of 1945. He told me funny stories, as they often do, Stu, when you're talking to veterans. But um, it, it was sort of left to me, I guess, after that moment or that time to track down his story piece by piece by piece for the book. Were you able to interview your dad more or less as you got older about some more details of his experiences at Battle of the Bulge? Um, I guess uh, um, the the wonderful thing about my father, Alex, and myself, Stu, is that we were very good friends. And we were, we were co-writers, co-hosts, co-authors. We even played golf badly together. Huh, okay. <laughs> but... So as friends, um, we shared a lot. And when I challenged him on some details of his experience as a medic, he came through with some information. Um, at the end of that experience, I related a minute ago when I was 14, he gave me a medal that he'd received, and I never thought anything more about it. I later discovered that the medal was what's called a bronze star, which is um, the third highest medal given for uh, meritorious service in the um, in the American Army, and but it took me a long time to track down what indeed had happened. So that story or that chase, that journey of finding my dad's story, forms the backbone of this book. It's not just about dad because um, there's more to medical uh, military medicine than just my father's story, and I wanted to tell a lot of it. And I had voices or interviews that I'd done with nurses and stretcher bearers and right. um, all kinds of military medical people that I wanted to stitch into the book. So Dad's story is the thread, and these others are the the spin-offs of that of that main theme. Did you ever uh, visit the Ardennes where the Battle of the Bulge took place? I did indeed. In fact, that was a turning point in this process. Do you've hit on on the key to this whole project? I worked on this book for many, many years. Um, after my dad died in 2004, I started piecing it together, his story and all the others. And then suddenly, just as the book was coming to a conclusion in, in terms of my writing of it, I learned of a, of a trip that members of the 94th Infantry Division and the 319th Medical Battalion, to which my dad was attached, this trip being uh, carried out across Belgium and into Germany, retracing the steps of this infantry group and medical group in 1944-45, and I, and I felt I could not miss it. I had to go. And I gave up something very large uh, as a compensation. I gave up my job to go. I was a professor at, at uh, Centennial College, and I decided that this book was more important. It was bigger than uh, a job in, in uh, uh, journalism. And I went off on this trip, and I discovered much more. People thought I was crazy. <laughs> but but when I went off on this trip, I learned much more than I had anticipated. I ran into a man 
who was born in a house in a little town called Borg, which turned out to be the first aid station where my dad had worked in the winter of 1944-45 at, at a crucial point in, in the battle at Camp Holtz Woods. So it was it was a revolution. It, it was revealing to me. It was a, an extraordinary an epiphany for me, and I and I, it really meant that I had to rewrite the book with much richer experiences than I'd originally anticipated, and a, a much truer, more uh, close to the bone story than I than I had written originally. Well, that's a great, uh, great, let's say, story about uh, how you were inspired to, to move it to the next level. I had uh, five uncles in the Second World War, so I know one of them was in the Battle of the Bulge. So when I visited there in 1980, it was kind of a special day. Also visited the uh, military cemetery, the American in Luxembourg there, where General George Patton was um, is, is buried, rather. And that was kind of an eerie day as well, so visiting I'm that sure site. I'm sure it was. Uh, when I stood there at Patton's grave, I had mixed feelings because my father didn't think too much of the man because okay. he he derided my father's uh, infantry division for the greatest number of non-combat casualties, and that's because they were not equipped properly. They had no winter clothing. They had no winter boots. They were given no air support, no tank support. These soldiers and the medical groups that traveled with them or that fought with them by brute force, as your uncle would attest, right. forced the Germans back into Germany um, through the toughest and coldest winter of the war. Um, in spite of Patton's deriding these guys, they did it. Well, maybe that was his his methodology, but uh, I suppose. I yes, suppose. Right. So, anyhow, uh, Ted, we uh, look forward uh, tonight to uh, hear more about uh, the uh, rush to rush to danger. Do you ever write a book with the thought that maybe it might make a, a a movie or anything like that, or does that across your mind? Well, sure, it does. You, I mean, I I think a lot of people have complimented my writing as being very visual, very movie-like right. uh, in the sense that it, it depicts things clearly through the recollections of individuals who witnessed them. Right. And and at the moment, I am negotiating one of my books to, to do just that, to become a, perhaps a docudrama, which would be great. It would be wonderful to see it happen. But these things take a long time. Of course. They're but... quite... Um, it, it, it's it's the you go through the period or the the process of optioning the book. Then somebody comes up with a script idea. They have to sell it. Then if they get the money through investment, they produce it. And you know, years down the road, maybe it comes to pass. I'm not holding my breath, but I'm certainly eager to see how it turns out. Well, that's uh, exciting times ahead. Do you still write the Barris beat then in the, in the Globe and Mail and the National Post, or is that? I, I write the Barris beat for uh, a local newspaper where I live in Uxbridge, the Cosmos. Oh, the Cosmos. And then I put okay. it I put it on my um, on my website uh, each week after it gets published in the paper, and I've been doing that since 1982. So um, that's about I think around two or three million words I've written in the Barris beat since the early 80s. So you uh, you picked that Barris beat up from your dad, of course. Uh, he, I did indeed. I was a telegram carrier boy uh, many, many years ago. I'm a little older than you are, so, but I remember reading your dad's column in the in the telegram. So the pink telly, the pink telly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> telegram pe- presses were always breaking down. But anyhow, we're looking forward to ha- hearing you more tonight. So again, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy day and spending it with me. Thank you once again, Stu. Thank you, a pleasure. And now, Stuart's going to interview Chris Hughes.
This afternoon, I'm talking to Chris Hughes, who's the president of BC Hughes Destination Development Marketing, uh, located in Shallow Lake, Ontario. I, everybody knows where Shallow Lake is. And uh, his team specializes in developing innovative tourism experiences and creative marketing strategies across the country. The mandate is simple. Develop a kick-ass visitor experience, and your customers will sell it for you. Chris, any thoughts on how you're going to proceed developing this concept at our annual general meeting, which will be held on October the 24th at the Kinplex? Yeah, thanks, Stuart. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, it sounds simple. Um, develop a kick-ass experience and people sell it for you. But in today's social world, we know that that happens every day. And we just hate to see people waste money on marketing, um, you know, on ad buys and, and buying advertising. We'd rather you double down and invest that in your business um, to really create something special and memorable for the customer. And uh, we're, you know, we're all pretty confident that they'll sell it for you. It's the old word of mouth. It's just the mediums have changed and sped up. So it's, um, I hope to bring some of that conversation to the uh, chamber meeting in a couple of weeks. Okay, well, that's that's exciting. Uh, having been in the uh, retail business here in uh, in Gray Highlands over twenty years, uh, having our little store there across from Eugenia Falls, we certainly have experienced a lot of uh, different types of people coming in. We have, um, quite frankly, it's nice to have some people coming in from other areas rather than just with the locals. So every October, of course, the leaves change and the people come up. So I think, though, one of the things that they're all out there to have an experience. So um, I noticed that you've talk, you're talking about it's the little things. And I think that's my experience is that's been true uh, running our store. I think one of the things that I remember um, when I was on council and we were talking about tourist booths, I think one of the councillors at the time said, every retail store is a tourist booth. I think that that was probably a very wise decision. Any thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. Everyone's definitely an ambassador for their area. Um, you all know the the age-old um, adage, you know, where somebody pulls into the gas station and asks the gas station attendant what's there to do around here, and the attendant says, I leave. I, there's nothing to do. you got to leave this area if you want something to do. And, uh, you know, you all always want to combat that. Um, you know, head on and you want to have your, your community businesses celebrate, you know, where they live and where they operate, the sense of pride, because that definitely comes off to the customer and, uh, you know, they feel it and they want to be part of new places because they're not at home. So it's really important that all the businesses um, are, you know, act as ambassadors or, you know, as you said, as, as the, old, the old sort of style tourist booth, that's really important. I have, uh, as the new concept that where people review each location they visit, is that an impact on a, you might have, let's say, an idea that it's positive, like a Google review? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, lots of people, you know, you know, I don't know the, the statistic, but speaking from personal experiences, um, you know, you always sort of do that review before you walk in the front door to see what other people have said, um, you know, and all, all, you always sort of read through the the reviews because there's, you know, generally some in there that are planted or, you know, unfavorable just by, you know, the 1%, but you, you know, definitely consumers are paying attention to online reviews. 
Well, I agree. Uh, when my wife and I were over in Italy, my wife was a really, every place we visited uh, was posting to uh, TripAdvisor. And fortunately, yeah. our uh, experience was very, very positive. So her reviews were good. So it's important then that social media and all, it's all coming together and, and creating the, the master experience. So Chris, uh, thank you for spending a bit of time. Uh, we want to be able to ha- hear your full speech. And uh, on October the 24th, you're our keynote speaker. This is uh, being really terrific uh, idea by our by our board to uh, bring you on. Anyhow, I look forward to uh, bringing out a nice crowd and look forward to hearing further from you on October the 24th. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on, for sure. Thanks, Chris. And now, Stuart's going to interview Rick Gamblin. Hmm. Rick, tell me your life history. Oh, okay. Well, I've been doing the chamber plan since uh, about 2004. Initially in uh, Oshawa, Ontario. And then we had the opportunity to buy the business in Markdale, which service the chamber plan for all of the Great Bruce area. What was the name of that uh, agency that you bought? Well, we, it's the Great Bruce Insurance Agency, and that's what we called it when we bought it and took it over in 2008. Yes. One of the things that uh, uh, you've, you're providing currently, we have 115 members of uh, the Great Highland Chamber, and uh, of that, 32 uh, firms are are participating in your plan, so not everybody, unfortunately, uh, in that, well, fortunately for those that are there, it's really important. I would join the plan in 2014. I've been very impressed with what's uh, the the things that are available in this plan. So also it re- represents a, a revenue stream for Grey Highlands Chamber. So uh, that's also impressive. So one of the things that we got talking about the other day was what's new in the insurance business uh, that people might be interested in. And uh, because we live in a rural Ontario and uh, getting a doctor sometime is, is a challenge. So you were telling me about this new telemedicine service. Can you give us a little bit of information on that? Yes, the, the teledoc service was added to the chamber plan as of September 1st. The, cha- the chamber plan's always looking at how they can improve the plan to service their, their clients. So one of the issues that came up was always the problem of trying to get a doctor when you need it. So this current teledoc telemedicine service uh, services over 35 million clients throughout the world, and the Chamber Plan is the first group insurance plan to bring that into their plans in Canada, which we're quite proud of. So there's no more waiting in line or or trying to get to an emergency room at 3 o'clock in the morning. You have these services available uh, through your telephone or through your smartphone. So that means uh, that uh, if I, it's, if you're in Putokana at 3 a.m., you could call this uh, number, which is available uh, 24-7, and uh, get some advice from a doctor. Is that, is that uh, am I thinking in the right direction on that? Almost. A little too far south. You'd have to be in the States. United, United States or Canada, you could call in and, uh, and get the services of the doctor. So... I went and uh, signed up the other day just to have some practical experience with it, and they capture your 
<clears throat> excuse me, your current medications, your doctor's information, and your pharmacy. Okay, so that's, when they, that's good. Yeah, when they do have to prescribe, then you, you're getting it delivered to your own pharmacy. So it's very, very convenient. So I'm a member of the community health clinic in, uh, in Markdale. Uh, so they have my medical files there. Are they, would they share that file with uh, the telemedicine service? Uh, or would they just want that I'm a member of the CHC and et cetera? Do they want to know my blood type? What uh, kind of information uh, would I have to provide? You can arrange for the information to be shared okay. uh, through the app so that a, a participating doctor would have full access to your medical background. Okay. Uh, I'm, right. I'm, I myself have been a diabetic for 52 years, so I had a, a few things to load up there. So at least they, they've got an idea as to what my medical background is, should I need their service. So when I was in Italy this year, would have... Uh, for two weeks, uh, I know my plan extended uh, for out of uh, out of province or out of country. Uh, uh, so, would it also have, uh, had uh, the telemedicine service available in Italy? Not so much in Italy. No, it's more so the, the North United States. Okay. Yeah, because the travel insurance under the Chamber plan would have looked after you. Right. Okay. In Europe, and again, the. Chamber plan always strives for the best coverage, and the travel insurance under the Chamber plan, there's no pre-existing condition clause with that coverage, and there's no limit to the coverage. You will work with individuals then. Can they meet with you uh, uh, if they're interested in joining uh, the Chamber uh, uh, insurance plan? Or how do you work? Oh, absolutely. Typically, we, we advertise on the, on the televisions. We drop flyers monthly to the businesses. And as long as you've got some sort of a business, whether you're a farm operation, a sole proprietor, or a business, you can get access to the chamber plant. And they just give us a call. We get their per information. And we do a quote and meet with them and uh, just go over and address any needs that they might have. All right, so you have a website personally, or do we just go on to the Chambers of Commerce Group Insurance Plan and, and look up uh, Gray Bruce? Is that how, how do people get in touch with you? I know it's well, on our would, website, uh, on, the, on the Chamber website, uh, the number, but if people didn't do that, is there a quick way of accessing you? Well, they would. we like them to go to the local Chamber site, so the Gray Highlands Chamber, and in which case there's a link over to chambersplan.ca where they can get extra information and if they were interested they could get our phone number through that. Otherwise it's listed on your your chamber site, the Grey Highlands Chamber. But yeah. some, sometimes uh, let's say uh, direct links uh, are you know, are what people are looking for today. So, um, yes. but they can always put you in their speed dial, right? I mean, Absolutely. Which Absolutely. I have today as, as well. So that's how we're able to, to reach you today. So, no, ab absolutely. Anyhow, uh, thanks for a little bit of that background and update. We'll certainly talk f uh, in the future. Uh, I wish you and your wife Kathy a, a wonderful, enjoyable uh, visit to Punta Cana. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Look forward to talking to you again. You've been listening to Episode 5 of In Grey Highlands This Week. 
for Thursday, the 17th of October, 2019, a current affairs podcast for and about the municipality of Grey Highlands in Ontario, Canada. Our hosts are Stuart Halliday and Paul McQueen. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we look forward to you favouring us with a response by email, feedback at ingreyhighlandsthisweek.ca, or a call on our voicemail at 519-900-8905. Please visit ingreyhighlandsthisweek.ca to view the show notes, leave a comment, or listen to the extended material. You'll also find links to our social media presence where you can further engage with the show. Our scores are skillfully composed and generously provided by Al Halliday of Arkham Dispatch and Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Thanks to our guests, author Ted Barris, Chris Hughes of BC Hughes, and Rick Gamblin of the Grey Bruce Insurance Agency. The show is produced by Tim Riley and Kate Russell at Leaking Ambient Studios in Flesherton. In Grey Highlands This Week is produced in association with the Grey Highlands Chamber of Commerce and is copyright under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives, 4.0, International License. <laughs>